This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday evening service. We'll do our best to complete the passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, but I have five translations in front of me, so you may all have to forgive me as I may bounce around back and forth. Sometimes some translations do a better job than others on certain, certain passages. Let's begin reading, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind purpose of His will. To the, praise of, to the praise of the glory of His grace. We just sang about that. That is, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely gave out on us in the Beloved. And in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind purpose, which He purposed in Him, with a view to a, an administration until the fullness of times. We'll talk about that. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, the things in heaven and the things that are on earth in Him. Void. And they'll avoid it because, well, it's not exactly the easiest thing to read and to understand, especially in our culture where we are all addicted to the how-tos, right? I mean, look at the, you know, catalog of, I would say, bookstores, but those seem to be declining, but at least online reads or whatever, but, you know, everything is geared towards the pragmatic and the practical of how to be happy and how to be successful and how to be influential and how to, you know, how to, you know, live your best life now or whatever those titles may be out there, you know, but, but even for Christians, part of the problem is that we can also jump around the Bible to only kind of focus on what we deem as going to be actually practical or beneficial or even the know-hows. You know, we, we run to the fruits of the Spirit list or other types of things like that. And the problem is we can neglect or we can skim over passages that are rich in theology that instruct us in the knowledge of God like verses 3 through 14. And it can be dangerous. And it's a problem that we can face in the church that can, that's only going to get worse in our information and digital age. I was reading an article this week that was talking about that it is estimated that right now in the year 2020, 1.7 megabytes of information is created for every person every second in the world. It's unbelievable. And our accumulated data of information by the end of this year will be over 50 zettabytes, which is more than 50 trillion gigabytes of information. Now, some of you think I probably just named some tribes of the Canaanites that you have never heard of before. But it's a problem that we have in our information age that when everything is accessible to us, when everything is just one click away, we can move away from passages in the Bible that don't seem to jump out, of, out at us as being immediately practical. Because we live in an age where we are fixated on the how-to's. Whereas we probably ought to be more fixated, or at least in coming away from Ephesians chapter 1, we can, I guess, better ask the question of the how comes. 
We know Ephesians for, you know, you think about why we know, for those of us who have been Christians for some time, you think about the reason that, uh, the reasons why we are familiar with what we know about the book of Ephesians. We know Ephesians for its emphasis on our salvation by grace and not by works. We know Ephesians for speaking the truth in love. We know Ephesians for its sections on marriage and on parenting and on work and on spiritual warfare, but we know much less on the foundation of it all, which is chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And in our day, just focusing on theology doesn't seem very practical, but this is the most practical because if you don't understand what Paul is saying here, you will likely miss the whole point of the book. And so when we read these verses, we should be overwhelmed. When you read this passage, it's almost like Paul is taking us, taking us on a spirit-inspired wild ride. It's complex, it's rich, and it's almost too much to fathom. In fact, theologian Fred Sanders says that this text leaves the reader feeling some degree of vertigo from its outrageous breadth of thought. And if anything, the mere reading of these verses may reveal that we have a diminished view of God's glory and grace if our response is unemotional. The passage immediately takes us, or takes us as the readers, into the heavenlies and to the world of the Spirit, and from that vantage point, invites us to join in the blessing of God for the blessings He has blessed us with. And this passage is ultimately... And Tommy will probably appreciate this. It's ultimately a call to worship. It's a call to join with the passage and being flooded with amazement over the work of God in Christ for his church. To leave you somewhat just kind of disoriented and thinking, wow, God is worthy of praise. It's high dosage, concentrated theology that praises God for his glory of his grace, his accomplished work for the church through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it helps us to see the majestic works of his grace, that that theme of grace that runs all throughout the book of Ephesians. And it causes us to marvel at the very nature of God where the very doctrine of the divine trinity is on display. We are to be in awe over God's nature, his purpose, his works, and how he has done this through Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, we could say that one of the main accomplishments of this text is that it teaches us more specifically how to worship God because it teaches us so much about God. Very important. The passage exalts God as triune and where the doctrine of the divine trinity here is on display. In these verses, God's glory is on display through the work of each member of the Godhead. What is fascinating about this passage is that three times you have the repetition of a phrase. In verses 6, 12, and 14, the phrase of to the praise of of the glory of his grace in verse 6, verse 12, to the praise of his glory in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And what is interesting about that is each of those refrains, each of those choruses are repeated after an examination of each member of the work of the Godhead. When Paul completes the conversation about the work of the Father, to the praise of his glorious grace. When he completes the conversation about the work of the Son, to the praise of his glory. And when he talks about the role and the work of the Holy Spirit, to the praise of his glory. The passage instructs us that we do not just worship God, we worship the triune God. And let us make it clear that if God does not exist, listen to me very carefully, if God does not exist in triunity, if God does not exist as Father and Son and Spirit, there is no such thing as the gospel. And this will become more clear as we look in verses 9 through 10, which 
is actually the main point of the whole passage. You know, last week we made it through verses 3 through 6, and we learned that contrary to our typical way of thinking, the greatest blessings that we have in this life, it's not our health, it's not finances, it's not earthly comforts, but the greatest blessings we have come from God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ. That's the greatest blessings that we have. And we learned why he blessed us last week, and that is because it is exclusively of God's grace. His grace is demonstrated in verse 4 by our election. It is demonstrated in verse 5 of God's choice of the church before the world was ever created, and that he predestined the adoption of his children through Jesus. And the grace of God is so rich, so abundant in verse 6 that Paul says that God is praised even for the glory displayed through his grace. He's glorified through the display of his grace. The grace of God is so rich, so abundant. The purpose of verse 3 is to help us explain that not only is God's grace so abundant, but in verse 3, the reason why he elected, the reason why he chose us in Christ is so that we would be holy and blameless before him. He adopted us as children in Christ so that we would begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Because of the work of salvation and by his spirit, we now share in the same relationship, the same union, and the same inheritance now that belongs to Christ. And so by God's grace, we've been chosen. We've been rescued out of the dominion of darkness that blinds the rest of the unbelieving world. Paul speaks about this when he says in Ephesians 2, 3, a few verses later, that among them, that is the world, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was us before Christ. And Paul continues in verse 4. You see, no longer are we fleshly indulgent and living for lust and greed and vanity and pride and selfishness, and no longer are we children of wrath. But verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved. Grace is the theme of this book. And here's the glorious part of it. You had nothing to do with it. In fact, if we had anything to do with it, we would have just messed it up. You no longer are we children of wrath. We're children of God. And it all began with the Father's love and election and adoption before the world began. You see, this is a call. This passage is a call to worship, to rejoice, and to marvel at the grace of God poured out on us in Christ. And if we are not, if we don't feel the impulse emotionally to want to worship, then we stayed up way too late on Saturday night. The passage not only calls us to worship, but it helps us and instructs us on, like I said earlier, how to worship God correctly. Our salvation by God, our knowledge of God, our worship of God, as I said earlier, is Trinitarian. Not only is God the Father the source of every blessing and choosing of his people and predestining them to adoption in Christ, but God the Son is in view as all these blessings are mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this last week that the word or the phrase in Christ or in him occurs 11 times in these 12 verses. Our blessings are given in Christ. We are chosen in him, adopted through him, and our grace is given in him. And the Holy Spirit's work here is described in, the, in these opening verses here. It's described as sealing us as his ownership, guaranteeing our future inheritance, and full redemption when everything is summed up underneath the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, the doctrine of the Trinity is often confused, it's marginalized, and sometimes not very clearly understood. And not having a clear understanding of the doctrine here can lead to errors as well. 
But these verses, verses 3 through 14, shows that our salvation is Trinitarian through and through. It's initiated by the Father, it's accomplished by the Son, and it's applied by the Holy Spirit. And you think about the implications of this. I mean, what does this mean even about our prayers? How do we address God in prayers? Well, we understand this passage. We understand that we pray to the Father through the Son and by the aid of the Holy Spirit. That even when we pray, all three members of the Godhead are at work in our prayers. What about our worship? English theologian Robert Lethem says that a living relationship with God requires that each person of the Godhead be honored and adored in the context of their revealed relations with each other. The nature of our response in worship is to be shaped by the reality of the one being worshiped. We worship the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, who planned our salvation from eternity, who sent his Son into the world and gave him up for us. We worship the Son who is in filial relationship to the Father, who willingly for us and our salvation was made flesh, submitted himself to life in a fallen world, trod the path of loneliness, temptation, suffering, and led to the death of a, to the cruel death of the cross. We worship him for his glorious resurrection, for his ascension to the right hand of the Father, for his continual intercession for us, for his future return to the judge of the living and the dead, and to complete our salvation. As John the Apostle says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We worship the Holy Spirit who gives life and breath to all, who grants us the gift of faith, sustains us through the difficulties of life as Christians in a world set in hostility to God and who testifies of the Son. And we could also add to that the work of the Spirit described here in verses 13 and 14. The point is we don't have to skim past this or overlook the significance of the rich theology because if, if we don't, it will help us in our worship. It will help us in our prayers. It will help us by increasing our faith. It will help us in our living and our conformity to the image of Christ, and it will confirm our hope. It calls us not just to worship, but to worship and address God rightly. You know, as you read this passage, I mean, after having understanding that we, we have to, that this is a Trinitarian focus, it, it's a focus that brings into, into light all of the work of the Godhead in view. But then Paul really begins to kind of drill down on what is the specific reason of why God has done all of this work through His Son. So with the nature of God kind of before us now, we turn our attention to the main point of the passage. There's so much going on in these verses, it's almost kind of hard to, it, it can be easy to miss. But, I, I, but the main point of these, of, verse, of these 12 verses, of verses 3 through 14, the main point here is that God is being praised, or the, the, is, it's a, I guess you could say it's a praise of God's glory for his grace that he accomplished for the church through the Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is being praised, his grace is being praised because of the, of the grace and accomplished work for the church that he did through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice when I read these verses, all the mentions of in Christ and in Him and for Him and through Him, all of the focus here, all of the attention is on all the work that's being accomplished through the Son. And we only know God as Father because, first of all, by faith we know, we know first the Son. There's no way to know the Father or have access to Him, as Jesus talked about in John 14, 6, unless we come through the Son. And therefore, the central point of this passage is verses 9 and 10, where Paul describes what God is accomplishing for the church through Christ. Essentially, 
God is summing up all things in Christ, all things in the heavens and all things in the earth. The last phrase there of verse 10 is the crescendo. It's the, it's the point where everything in the, the text, the tension in the text is rising and building to verses 9 and 10. And we understand that God's entire purpose is to sum up everything in Christ. So verses 9 and 10 tell us what God is accomplishing, and all the other verses support that by telling us how God is accomplishing it. So let's turn our attention to verses 9 and 10 and understand that up until now, Paul has described all of the Father's work of election and adoption and the favor of His grace, all of this as having been done first in Christ. In fact, last week we looked at the end of verse 6 and, we, and, and pointed out at the end of verse 6 there that this grace that's been bestowed on us, it first came in the beloved. It first came to Christ. The Father loves the Son first. And Jesus tells us in John 14, 23, that if anyone loves me and will keep my word, my Father will love him. God loves, the Father loves the Son first, and everyone who loves the Son is then attached to the Son and then experiences the same love from the Father that Christ himself receives. Think about that for just a moment. Think about that. The Father sets his love and affection on us by faith in his Son. If you love his Son, he then turns and loves you. Isn't this something? This is why Paul says this is this grace that, and I love that word, that he lavished on us, right? Just the abundance of his grace that he just lavishes, he just spoils us with his grace. And in verse 7, he speaks about our redemption that's been accomplished by Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, the riches of his grace here, and the wisdom and the insight, the understanding in verse 8 that he has given. And in all of this, in verse 9, Paul says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, I don't know about you, but everybody likes a little mystery out there, right? Everybody likes a little mystery. It likes to be kind of on the inside of something, Right? And this is what's so amazing, is that by naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when you believe on him, you are invited to a conversation that is only going on between God and his people, that no one, has, no one else has access to. In fact, it's interesting, the word mystery in the Greek here is a word that was used in Paul's day to speak about mystery cults and mystery philosophies and other religions to where, you know, the knowledge or the information was only given to a select handful or to a select few. It's almost like, you know, kind of being members of a secret society or, some, or something here. But the apostle describes now that the church is the one who has the privileged knowledge of God because of the work of Jesus and because of our union to Christ through his spirit. We've been invited now to the inside conversation. The apostle describes the church as having a privileged knowledge of God. What previous ages did not understand about God, what unbelievers do not know about God, has all been made clear through faith in Christ because the mystery has been made known. The mystery of the work of God has been made known through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, well, what is the mystery? The mystery in what was not known is the mystery of God's plan is all about salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you two examples that is just a couple of chapters over. In Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, Paul says by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to, uh, revealed to his apostles and the prophets in the Spirit. You see, the mystery was not revealed until Christ appeared and Christ accomplished his work of salvation. 
But in Colossians, Paul even prays for churches that were un- he was unable to visit, and this was his prayer for them in Colossians 2. He says, his prayer is that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, we see the wisdom of God. As 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. None of this made sense. None of us would have known the Trinity. None of those servant passages in Isaiah make a whole lot of sense. None of the us or the first person plural language in Genesis chapter 1, none of that begins really makes any sense until the day that Christ was laid in a manger and then accomplished the work of his obedience, of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension. And then all of a sudden, the mystery of God, of how he was going to fix the problems that had been impacted by the fall of humanity, how he was going to redeem the world and what was wrong with it, all began to make sense when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared. Christ is the mystery of God revealed. God's plan all along, even before time began, Paul says in Titus 1-2, was to accomplish redemption through his beloved, through Christ. Think about that. Before time began, God's plan all along was to accomplish redemption through his Son. God has revealed himself to us as a triune, for his Son is the entire focus point of all history and the object now of worship. And in the second half of verse 9, what is interesting is Paul says that all this was done for God's good pleasure, just like the sovereign grace that he used to save us. It's for his pleasure Colossians 1.19, Paul says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all of the fullness to dwell in him. God the Father was pleased for the fullness of God to dwell in the Son. And when you get to verse 10, the mystery is fully explained that the plan of God was to unite everything together under Christ. In other words, to be summed up in Christ. The Greek in the beginning of verse 10 is a little difficult, depending on your translation, but when you put verses 9 and 10 together, here's literally how it should read, that he, the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ or in him for the administration of the fullness of time to sum up all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth in him. Now let's first of all, let's talk about the end of where we're going and then we can back up and talk about what those, what those verses earlier in verse 10 mean. The goal here is that God is saying that everything in heaven and earth, everything is going to be summed up under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what he's talking about here is that this administration, now what is this administration of fullness of time all about? Why is that language so confusing? Well, the administration that he's speaking about is, is, is God speaking about the way he's organized history and events all for the singular point of the Christ event. In other words, that everything has happened from the beginning since creation all the way up until Christ, until Christ's coming, his death, his burial, his mission, his resurrection, all those things, and even to now, all of that, God has organized the entirety of history around the summing up of all things under the sun. God has, the Father has been the administrator. He is administrated. He has served as the administrator to organizing the every sequence of event in human history and history period in order to culminate in the moment when Christ himself will, will, will everything will be summed up in him. Isn't that something? You know what that means? History's no accident, Right? God is the author of all things. 
God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one truly who is free. But isn't it something that over thousands of years and essentially all of history culminates in this purpose that to reveal Jesus as being Lord over all. This is a mystery that's unknown to the world, but it's now known to us who believe. You know, we take that for granted. The world does not understand that whether you want to believe in Christ or not, you will believe one day. Because when he appears, every idol that men held dear will be cast into the caves, Isaiah says. And John tells us in Revelation that, they, that people will actually cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the presence of him who is coming. The Lord Jesus begins his kingship first, and this is what I don't want you to miss. Here, you want some how-to? You want some practicality? Here's some practicality for you. He tells us first and foremost that the beginning of this reign, the beginning of this work of Christ's dominion begins first in the church. This is a starting point. The starting point of Christ's dominion and his rulership is in the church. In fact, look at the very end of the chapter, of chapter 1, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ. The Father brought all this about in Christ, one, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The dominion of Christ first shows itself up in the church. You can't lose sight of how important this is for us. Because if you fail to understand this, you're not going to understand any of all those wonderful practical lessons that come up in Ephesians later. Jesus stated at the end of Matthew that all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. But that, that authority that has been given to him, Paul tells us, is manifested in two stages. Two stages. Not 11. Sorry, I didn't mean to confuse anybody. But in two stages, all right? The first stage is during the present age. Paul calls this the, uh, the this age that is, between his ascension and his second coming, where God has chosen, listen to me now, God has chosen to display the kingship of his son first by ruling in his church. God has chosen to glorify the son and the rulership of his son through the church first. The second stage is at the, is at the second coming of Christ. What Paul tells us there uh, in verse 21 is the age to come when he will overthrow all authorities and all powers in the spiritual or heavenly realm or on earth and he will be the visible Lord over all creation where his power will no longer be disputed. It will be on full display. And right now, in this age, think about this for just a moment. God has chosen the church to display his glory, of, to display the glory of Christ through his work in the church. This explains the how-to. It explains our purpose in understanding that we have been chosen to be holy and blameless before him. God has chosen the church to demonstrate the kingship of the Son. Do you hear that? You and I were given the grace of God. We were redeemed by God. We were forgiven by the work of the Son. All this happened so that the kingship of Christ could be on visible display before the world. You see that? The church, Christ's people, we are the ones who are to manifest that Christ is king before the world. That alone should tell us everything we need to know about our purpose and what to do with our lives. That is the how come before we're ready for the how-tos. 
And now that we know our purpose and God's intention, it will shape our relationships with one another in the church. It will impact our character. It will transform our speech. It will guard and help with our actions and our motives and our interests and our desires and the way that we organize our home. All those things will be impacted when you and I begin to understand that Christ, that God has chosen us to display the authority of Christ by our submission to his kingship first. Everything else falls in place when we understand that. We must make Christ's dominion visible with our lives. And you got to ask yourself the follow-up question, where am I not showing his kingship visible? That's the natural question. And he says in verse 10 there that this, is, this dominion, this summing up is things in heaven and on earth. And the significance of that statement, you know, it'll become more clear later as, you, as we work through chapter 2 of Ephesians. But that Christ's kingship reaches every aspect of cre- all of creation. Every height, breadth, depth, length, width, whatever of all creation. Everything visible, invisible, heavenly, and earthly. Nothing is untouched by his dominion. I mean, if you remember anything about your Bible, about how you, what we've studied, about how Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden had made an absolute wreck of creation. Everything was left in disarray as a result of their rebellion. Everything is broken. Principally what was broken was the, was the communion or the fellowship that God had with humanity. That's why what is on display even in this work right here of Ephesians 1, that through this redemption that he's talking about, he's speaking out here about even the work of Christ's reconciliation. The reconciliation where Jesus, through his sacrifice, restores the broken relationship between God and humanity through his redemptive work. And here's what's amazing to me, that as fully God and fully human, Jesus unites us to God through his body, which is the temple. It's one of the things that's such a blessing about reading the book of Ephesians. The terms of the temple and Christ's body, all those things are interchangeable by Paul. Why? Because as the God-man, you, you, you remember the statement, right? Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll do what? I'll rebuild it. Why? Because Christ is the temple. Why? Because he, the Spirit, fully indwells in him. And then when Christ is ascended, he fulfills his promise and he descends, that the Spirit then descends upon his followers. We are joined to his body. His body is what connects heaven and earth. He is the temple. He is in him. The the fullness of God dwells. And now the spirit of God indwells within us. We have a union with Christ. We have access to God. We are now in Christ. And as a result of that, we have access to the Father and all of the benefits, as the will would say, all the benefits that pertain thereto, right? Isn't that something? Man, this is, this is deep stuff. Makes you, like I said, you understand my comment now, why it makes you a little disoriented. In Jesus, there is peace between God and humanity for those who believe. And when redemption is complete, there will be complete peace in every realm and every aspect of all of creation until, as the hymn writer says, till every foe is vanquished. God is unifying the entire creation order, the entire created order towards a common goal. Listen, and that common goal, all of history, all of history has been orchestrated and moving to a single event in the end, and that is the complete lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, when you get to verses 11 through 14, Having that understanding helps us to understand now what it means to belong to him. And, and to help us understand the significance of being Christ's body and to be joined to him by adoption and receiving the benefits of his work of reconciliation, Paul outlines a couple of things for us, and we'll, we'll wrap up here. But the concept of our inheritance, as you notice verses 11 and 14, that the concept that we actually have an inheritance, isn't that something? No matter how broke you may think you are, at least we know if we're in Christ, we have an inheritance. Isn't that good to know? 
and hopefully the IRS can't reach it. But we are told that we have been, and this is what's amazing about verse 11, we've been told that we've actually been appointed an inheritance. Some of your Bible translations may say that we have obtained an inheritance. But the actual language is a little bit more direct than that. The actual language in the text actually says that we have been appointed an inheritance. Think about that. If you're in Christ, you have no choice. You have an inheritance. Not a bad gig. I can think of worse. So verse 11 is literally saying, in him we were appointed a portion. But what does that mean? Well, again, God's grace is in view. If God, having chosen his people, is to receive a portion, basically, we're receiving a portion of what belongs to God. Think about that. What belongs to God now belongs to us. What belongs to Christ belongs to us. If you've trusted in Christ then the inheritances of Christ now belong to those who trust in him. This is why the language of adoption is so specific and so and such a blessing. You've been, you and I have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and as a result of that, then whatever blessings and benefits that belong to Christ belong to those who are also children of God, whom Paul will say in Romans 8 are joint heirs with Christ. That's something. The language that Paul uses here comes from Deuteronomy 32.9, where the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. But this time, God is not choosing land here. God is talking about he chose his people. We are the inheritance of God. That's the language Paul is using. Just because Jesus now is the true Israel, he inherits all the blessings of Israel. And when we trust in him, we inherit the blessings of Jesus. Think about that. But here's something else that's interesting. Verse 14, Paul says that this is why the Holy Spirit is given to the church, to ensure us that we have been included in the benefits of Christ's savings work. You know, if you've ever been a Christian long enough, at some point you're going to doubt your salvation. That's okay. First John was written for that purpose, to kind of help us understand, hey, you want to know if you're a child of God? Read the letter of First John. Maybe not for the guys, but ladies, I think Molly Gravasio is leading a study through that right now. So, you know, but well, I don't know why. I got women that are joining in our Friday morning men's Bible study online. So, you know, I guess if you all want to tune in, go ahead. By the way, I'm not a complaint, by the way. I, I enjoy seeing y'all on there. But listen, I want, you, I want you to understand something. That here, Paul is mentioning to us in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit is given to the church for, the, for this reason, to make sure that we understand that if we've placed faith in Christ, we are included in all those benefits of salvation. Paul even uses kind of real estate language. He uses language that speaks about that the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment, as an earnest money deposit that speaks to eventually the, taking the full title of the blessings that he has in store for us. Paul specifically says, you, did you notice this language? That we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit was promised by the prophets as a part of, uh, well, it was prophesied by the prophets. When you think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel. But it's also promised by the Lord Jesus Christ on the last Passover meal. But the giving of God's Spirit has an incredible benefit because of its sealing. The sealing that Paul's talking about is the official stamping or the marking that's on us. This is This is amazing. This seal was used to mark ownership. People in the ancient world used seals like branding cattle. They marked and used seals to brand and to mark what was their ownership, what belonged to them. And now, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, Paul says, is the mark of God's ownership on us. God marks us as his possession. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, because of the way that the seal language is used throughout the New Testament. You know, having the seal of God ultimately protects us from the wrath of God. 
In Revelation chapter 7, just before the four angels were to descend and to begin their work of judgment and destruction upon the earth, an angel cries out in Revelation 7, 3 and says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we all sealed the bondservants, the slaves of our God, on their foreheads. And there it goes on to describe all those who were sealed by God on their foreheads, and ultimately they were protected by the wrath of God that was poured out. And that seal, the presence of his Holy Spirit, it marks us out as belonging to the Lord. We are marked with his seal, and this distinguishes us from those who are marked with the mark of the beast on their hands and their foreheads. That way, when all the enemies of God are destroyed in the end, and God descends upon the earth once again, and his complete consummation of the reign of Christ is complete, and all things are underneath his feet. He's reconciled everything in heaven and earth. John tells us in Revelation 22, 3 and 4, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That even now, that the possession of the Holy Spirit on us, it is a marking of God's ownership on our lives. And that ownership is a down payment for the day where you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he will look on our foreheads and he will say, he is mine, he is marked with my seal. That's something. You can't read this text and not do anything but just be overwhelmed with the grace of God. This seals the guarantee of our hope. We have an inheritance that's waiting for us. And in this seal that we have now, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enters us. He indwells us. He saturates us. He pervades us and countless persons. So to bring us all into union with Christ the Son. And that, and taking away that kind of understanding in these opening verses is what's going to pave the way for helping us to mine out the richness and the gems and the beauty of the rest of this letter. God, listen to you. You know, too many people in our society feel like that they don't know why they exist. They don't understand their purpose. They don't understand their identity. They are confused over those types of things. But let me tell you something. You can't read a text like this. If you name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what you have to understand is that that there is not a single person who is a Christian who can ever say that their life is meaningless. No Christian can say that they have no reason for living. No Christian can say their life does not have value. If you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an adopted child of God. You were a broken image from sin, but you are being restored in Jesus. Your pointless and sinful ventures and activities of the past are all over with, and now you live with a genuine purpose. God has put you up as a display, a trophy of his grace to demonstrate his wonderful kindness in front of all of the ages and in Jesus you have meaning you have identity you have value you have purpose all because God loved you first everything about you and your life is meaningful and purposeful in Christ but let me just challenge you with this and we'll close that when you read a text like this, it also challenges all, challenges all of us to go on a search and destroy mission. To seek out and search for every way in our life where Christ's dominion is not evident. Did you hear what I said earlier? God has chosen the church to display the dominion of his son. That means everything about you. That means everything about me. My life is to be on display before the world as being one who bears the seal of God on my forehead. I'm the, my life in your life is to be lives that demonstrate this is what one looks like who's under the rulership 
of the one whom God is summing up all things. This text begs us to go on a search and destroy mission. Find out those areas in our lives where Christ's dominion is not evident. And man, bring those before his feet. So he can purify our hearts, purify our lives, and by the example of us being trophies of his grace, he can bring in more people who will want to, as Isaiah says, grab the corner of our garment and say, I want to know the Lord like you do. Let that be the understanding of our mission because of the mission that God has been accomplishing through his son. And so, Father, as we contemplate those things and think about your glory that is displayed, Lord, in the grace that you've given and demonstrated through your church, help us, Lord, as trophies of your grace to live under the dominion of Christ. Lord Jesus, be magnified by our lives. Be glorified in our confession of faith, the profession of our life, all of these things. Lord, may, Lord, let, let us, Lord, relinquish control of the areas, Lord, that your dominion is not evident, that you may have complete freedom and reign in every corner and every recess of our heart and lives. Be glorified in us. And we thank you, Lord, for the blessings and the benefits of salvation. We thank you for the down payment that we've been provided through your spirit. And we praise you, Lord, for the hope that we have that one day the visible manifestation of the glory of Jesus will be fully made known. We pray this and thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.